It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're certainly prayerful that the things that we do here today are beneficial and they're edifying, and I hope that the things that I present to you this morning will build you up, encourage you in some way in your faith. Over the last couple of months in the month of October, I did a study on the book of Jude and looking at a rebellious spirit, and prior to that, Trevor had been looking in and Peter, Peter's writings and dealing with rebelliousness, and he and I had discussed a lot of those things that we were, there was this, you know, constant drum of dealing with a rebellious heart and a rebellious spirit. Those things are things that we, you know, understand and we need to know, especially in American culture and our ideas of independence and everything else. And as I did my study in Jude, in each of those places, in 1 Peter and in Jude, it kind of gives you, at the end of those letter writings, it gives you the right perspective. The authors tell you, this is what you should do. In Jude's case, it was kind of, it was to look constantly upon one another. And as I began to think about that and think, you know, we kind of hammered that home, what I wanted to talk about this morning is to really, if we really want to look at how to really solve that problem, it's about the mindset of what and who we are. And that mindset is that we are slaves of Christ. And I know the idea of slavery is not one that's looked on uh, very well, thinking of our history and our country and all the things that happened throughout the world and historically throughout the world, and it's, it shouldn't be. But whenever you look at it from a biblical perspective, this is what you're called to be. If you want to put the right heart and mindset in place in your life, this is how you do it. You are a slave of Christ. You are bonded to Jesus Christ. And I think that when we look at that, it's mainly only two points. Becoming a slave and being a slave. That's what our life boils down to. At the end of all of it, when we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, isn't that what it all boils down to? Did I do what I was supposed to do and did I continue doing what I was supposed to do? Did I serve you faithfully? Did I serve you justly? Did I serve you with the entirety of my life? Because as we go through this study this morning, that's exactly what being a slave is. Before we begin looking, though, I want us to notice... Uh oh We've got a problem. I think we're going to have to restart it. I want us to notice, though, as you begin and you look at many of the authors in the New Testament, and you look at how they introduced... Their, their writings. And you look at Peter, and you look at Paul, you look at James, you look at Jude, and you look at John. And they all begin with this expression of slavery. With this expression of, this is who they are. The Greek word for slave, or for servant as it's oftentimes translated, is simply doulos, D-O-U-L-U-S. And the definition of that word is a slave 
a bondman, one who gives himself up to another's will. And each started these, their letters with this declaration of being a slave for Christ. They voluntarily gave up their lives. They voluntarily said, I will serve my master. I want you to think about, as Paul wrote his letter in Corinth, and he said the same thing in Romans, he made this expression that there was no other way that he could look at life, that he really had no other choice but to be this very thing. This servant, this bonded slave to Jesus Christ. Not someone that was hired, not someone that was being paid to do a job. And it's also, and you look at it historically in Old Testament, this is an imagery of something that we get. When you look in the Old Testament, or excuse me, you look in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 5, prior to this, uh, James and John's mom came to Christ and asked if he could if James and John would sit on the left and the right hand of, of Christ. And Christ told her, you know, it's, that's not up to me. That's prepared by God. And then it said the other disciples were, they were upset with James and John in this. But it says, Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among him, among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That word there, servant, there is another word that we look at oftentimes. It's called diakonos. That word that we often, whenever we look at the role of deacon, that's what that word is. But contrast to what Christ, what Peter, excuse me, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, as he opened his letter and Chapter 1, he talks about them living a life that is worthy of the gospel. And then he reminds them of something. He says, let this mind being in you. He's wanting them to be united not only in word and mind, but united in Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So this word servant is the word Dulos, the slave. So Christ became not just a minister or diakonos, but He became something much greater for you and I. That He willingly gave Himself up for you and I. That He willingly put Himself in that position. Now what I wanted to talk about earlier was the New Old Testament and the imagery that we get in the Old Testament and when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 12, if thy brother and Hebrew man or an Hebrew woman be sold in thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress. Of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, shalt thou give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee, therefore I command thee this thing today. And if you ever want to talk to somebody who has a problem with God, has a problem with the Bible, this is a passage that's fairly common. This idea of slavery in the Old Testament, and it's oftentimes lifted out of context and not used properly, and the context was a lot of times people got into a position 
where they had finances, financial problems. They owed somebody a lot of money, and so they could essentially sell themselves. God allowed them to sell themselves to become slaves. And he allowed them to do that, but at the end of six years, he said, in the seventh year, they shall be released. And not only shall they be released, but you're supposed to give them liberally of your flocks, of your property. And the idea was so that they didn't have to turn right around and go sell themselves to somebody, somebody else. And he says, I want you to remember why. Number one, it is God that has blessed you with what you have. But number two, it's also a reminder. It's a reminder of what you came out of, of what you were, that your ancestors and you came from slavery yourself as they were brought out of Egypt. But not all, and not all the time did they want to leave. There were times that a slave wanted to stay. And it shall be, if he say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee, then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear into the door, and he shall be thy servant forever, and also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. So there was the case in which someone said, I love you, home. I love you. I love working for you. I love what you do. I love that you provide for me. I want to stay with you. And he says, if that's the case, then you take an all. I don't know if you know what an all is. The only, thing, the only time, the only way I have to reference that is if you've ever seen anybody do any type of leather work and they're punching holes in leather, it's just a steel shaft. And he says, you take that and you shove it through their ear to the doorpost on your home. That's a pretty clear indication that you're bonded to somebody's home. This is the root of where earrings came from, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it was common during this time, if you saw a slave, they had an earring. So it was known that they were a slave. Now, I find this fascinating in this very clear statement that they were just not merely just slaves, but they became permanently attached. They became permanently bonded to that house and to that master. They put their trust of their livelihood, they put their trust in everything into that person. This wasn't a situation in which you didn't have an opportunity to walk away from this. This was a situation in which you wholly submitted yourself to that home. And you bonded yourself to that home. So what makes one a slave today? You know, the slave in the Old Testament had his ear pierced, driven through to a doorpost in a home. It could be seen by everyone that he or she belonged to somebody. But what about us? We're talking about being slaves of Christ. What is, how do we become marked or bonded to Christ? How do we become enslaved to Christ? How do we get that mark? In Romans chapter 5, Paul is dealing with a lot of problems throughout the book of Romans as far as the Old Testament law is concerned. And he introduces the subject of grace quite heavily in Romans chapter 5. As a matter of fact, as he closes out 
Romans chapter 5, he bounces back and forth between this word gift and grace, gift and grace, four times. He contrasts those two words back and forth. In Romans chapter 6, he opens up with that question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound more? And he says, no, emphatically no. And he reminds them of something very, very important. Later on in Romans chapter 6, he goes on to say, But God, be thanked that you were servants, and this is that word, slave, that you were slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being made from sin, free from sin, you became the servants or slaves of righteousness. So he says, you're one of two things. You were a slave of sin, but you did something to become a slave of righteousness. That you were made free. What did he say you do? You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Earlier we said he reminded them of something that was very important that they did. Know you not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized unto his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism and death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He said you were slaves of sin, you obeyed that form of doctrine, and then you became slaves of righteousness. That form of doctrine, the pattern that he just expressed, something that you had, they had already done. And he was reminding of them of that. That this is what sets you apart from being a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness. This is what sets you apart and marks you for Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, he deals with the very same subject. He opens in, in excuse me, <coughs> writing in Colossians chapter 2, he talks about there about his work and his struggles that he's dealing with, not for just the church at Colossae, Colossae but also the church at Laodicea. And he looks and he says, he reminds them of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of their role and their place in Jesus Christ. And he says, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How did that happen? How did they have this circumcision that was done without hands? That the filth of the flesh was separated and, and put apart. You're buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, which has raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You want to be marked You need to be baptized. If you want to put aside the sins of the flesh, you need to be baptized. If you want to become a servant of righteousness and no longer a servant of sin, you need to be baptized. Allowing by faith the operation of God. That same faith that we know raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same faith that allows us to be cleansed in the waters of baptism. The servant in the Old Testament had a piece of metal driven through his ear. 
the slave Jesus Christ had nails driven through his hands and feet. He asks us to submit in the waters of baptism and have the flesh, the fleshly sins in this world removed from our lives. That's how we know that we're marked by Christ. But it's more than just being marked by Christ. It's about being marked for Christ. And John chapter 15 is one of the greatest illustrations of, and, and honestly, a very black and white assessment of how things operate with God and us. In John chapter 15, he is talking about vines and branches, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And he makes a very clear distinction about what happens with those vines and those branches, or what happens with those branches. He talks about the fact that it's the vine that supplies the nutrition to the branches. And in doing so, something should happen with the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Him supplying the nutrition and everything that we need, we should have some sort of off-putting fruit that is obviously noticeable. That says that we are marked for Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 simply talks about the fruits of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That these are all examples, that these are all things that can outwardly be seen. Have you ever seen a fruit tree that you could eat the fruit off that you didn't see? That's the example that's given in John chapter 15. We can't say that we're marked by Christ, that we're marked for Christ, and have none of the fruits in which Christ says, if I'm supplying you all the nutrients, this is what you should be providing. This is what I should see. This is what others should see. When we go to places like Galatians chapter 5, are those characteristics and things that people can see? Or is it just something that we profess inwardly? At the end of this, he makes a very clear indication that if there is no fruit, if it's fruit that cannot be seen, then what point is there having the branches? The branches will be cut off and they will be cast aside and they will be burned. There is no more black and white illustration that I can think of than John chapter 15 in our relationship and His expectation of what He wants if we are actually His. In 1 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy and he's talking about a lot of problems coming along that people are doing that not people are saying you don't have to marry you should don't have to uh, you shouldn't eat certain foods and he's giving them this reminder of the things that he should teach and he talks about the things that he was taught and he says you need to do the same thing and he says let no man despise thy youth but be thou an example of the believers in word in conversation in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. 
Here is an actual illustration of what the fruit of the Spirit is as far as what Paul was telling Timothy he needed to do. That this is an example, that this is something that clearly could be seen. This was something that needed to be seen of you in all the churches and specifically where he was at. You can take Galatians chapter 5 and you can marry up every one of those in that passage. In conduct, in conversation, in our love, in our spiritual life, in our faith, and in our purity. That's how we show that we're marked for Christ. In the Old Testament, someone could look at someone's ear and see that they were a slave. Today, all they have to do is look at your life. In Matthew chapter 5, Christ is given that Sermon on the Mount there, and the, He gives this contrasting statements in what we call the Beatitudes, and blessed are, and He gives mo- a lot of these statements that were how we oftentimes don't think of things. And He was kind of flipping everything on its head as He gave this Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter, there in about verse 12, he says that you are the salt of the earth. He goes on to say that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all those that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Immediately to this, he talks about the eye being the lamp unto the world. And that if the eye is clean, then your heart's in the right place. But if the eye is dirty, you've got a problem. And I want you to notice something else that he says here. He doesn't say, you should be the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. If your conduct is the way that he had been expressing this contrast in the way the world viewed things and the way Christ and God viewed things, if your lamp or your light was clean and had the right perspective and the right objective, then you are the light of the world. But if your lamp is dirty, how is your lamp any different than anybody else's? The objective at the end of all of this was to glorify God. Isn't that what a slave does? Everything a slave would do would try to be to the glory of their master. So we're marked for Christ in our fruit, in our example, and the character that we display in our lives. And that mark is shown to anyone and everyone around us. And we don't have a physical marking like they did. But a marking that is displayed in our hearts and in the conduct of our lives. So the second aspect of being slaves of Christ is is literally that, just being a slave and everything that's involved with being a slave. And the first of that, deals with commitment, and we need to have a proper perspective on our commitment. In Romans chapter 
8, or actually leading up that to Romans chapter 7, Paul's still, in, still dealing with the Old Testament law. And in the beginning of chapter 7, he talks about the Old Testament law in which if someone died, if a spouse died, then the other spouse was freed from that bond, was freed from the bond of marriage. And he uses this to illustrate the fact that the Old Testament is dead. The Old Testament law is now dead, and you're free from that bond. At the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there in verse 1, it says, Now those that are in, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, Why? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law and sin of death. So our commitment comes from this understanding of what Christ did for you and I. That we were made free from the law of sin and death, that we were made free because of His willingness to submit Himself, because of His willingness to become a slave and sacrifice Him to the very world in which He created and allowed them to murder Him. So that puts us in our proper perspective. Which talks about our commitment and what we're committed to doing in Christ. And what we're called to do. Committed to doing His will. In Matthew chapter 6, Christ is talking there. Prior to this, He's talking about the fact that no man can serve, or excuse me, that you can't. He's talking about laying up for yourselves treasures in the proper place. Laying up treasures for yourself in heaven. Where moth doesn't corrupt. Where worldly things don't have an impact on it. And then he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold on to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. If this doesn't get to the crux of our commitment, I don't know what does. The principle is twofold. Understanding our proper relationship with God and Christ here and on earth, and what we're looking forward to. Are we more concerned with committing ourselves to the busyness of this life, to the busyness of making money, to the busyness of having homes and cars and vehicles and making sure all of those things are in place before we take care of our treasures in heaven. Because oftentimes that's what we do. Oftentimes we pass up opportunities to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven for the worldly, the fleshly, and the earthly. Those things that are all going to be gone. You know, David made a statement in his prayer this morning that I really like, the fact that having a proper perspective, that the things in this life, they really don't matter that much. How often time, how many times do we get wrapped up in whether or not we're going to have enough in retirement? How's the 401k doing? How's the IRA doing? Am I putting enough in my IRA? Am I doing enough to save up so that when I'm old, I'll have enough money? 
And all the while, opportunities for us to lay up treasures in heaven are just passing us by. And I know that's a vague statement, but let's be real. Opportunities to lay up treasures in heaven. Service. When we know that someone needs our help and we just let that pass by. Spending time in God's Word and learning what He wants from us and committing to meditation and study. And we just let that pass by. Taking the time to open the book with our children and study the Word of God with them so they may know those things. And we let those things pass by. All for what? So that my RA has got a little bit more money in it? Where does our commitment truly lie? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writing to Timothy there, he's discussing commitment with him. And he says there, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Paul is, to summarize what he's saying there, if you commit to Christ, he commits to you. I loved Trevor's lessons on suffering, and he made a statement that I had never thought of in any, of those, in any study in, in 1 Peter. When he's talking about suffering, and he made a statement that said, not, not to let your suffering go to waste. And that blew my mind, to be completely honest. Paul called for Timothy to embark in the same sufferings as Christ. Peter said that very same thing, that if he suffered, what do you mean? What do you think you're going to do? You're going to suffer just as he did. If your master suffered, you're going to suffer as well. That's a real test of our commitment. That's a real statement of our commitment. Young people, when you're in school and all the ideologies and all the junk that comes from this world, all the wokeness and idiocy comes down the pipe. Remember who you're committed to. Let them see that you're willing to take a few words To be called a few names because you are committed to Christ. And you're committed to laying up treasures in heaven for Him. Having a proper attitude in being a slave. The ideology of being a slave isn't one that we think of where we say, I'm going to be happy and everything else when we look at it from a historical perspective. That people were brought into slavery but Christ and the authors in the New Testament called for us to serve in a way that was not begrudging, that we were joyful. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we call this the faith chapter. And time and time again, 
The writer says there, by faith, Noah did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Abraham did this. And he talks about all of these things that these great men in the Old Testament did. And he talks about prophets and he talks about all the sufferings that they went through. That they were without food, they were without place to sleep, that they were murdered and they were killed. And then he opens up in verse 12, knowing that these people are looking at you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Here's this call that all of these people in the Old Testament and their faith and what they did because they were looking towards Jesus Christ. Now we're looking back towards those and we're looking towards Jesus Christ. And he says, remember. But more so than just remember, endured. And that he had a right heart and a right mind. That he endured a contradiction of the very creation in which he created. And what he allowed them to do to him. In the book of Philippians, we talked about earlier how he called them in chapter 1 to live a life of the worthy, live a life that was worthy of the gospel which they were called. He says in verse 2, he's talking about them being united. And this is the attitude that he called them to have. Be ye like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one of mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Let not every man on his look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And there is a summation of the proper attitude of being a slave of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's about others. Having love for others. Being like-minded with those of the same faith. Putting yourself underneath and not above. What about your concerns for others? You know, oftentimes we get caught up in this world. We get worried about work. We get worried about raising kids. And we, maybe we think as we get older, I'll do that then. But it never happens. Years ago, I worked with a man that he told me to take my family on trips, to take vacations with my family. And I was like, uh, I'm poor, can't do that. I can barely get to work with the gas in my tank. And he told me about his father-in-law that had worked as an accountant for years and had... Millions of dollars socked back. 
And they were going to go see the world. They were going to go to Italy. They were going to Greece. They were going to go to Europe. They were going to do. They were just going to spend years traveling. Two months after he retired, he died. So that's why he gave me the advice to go travel, spend time with my family and vacation. But I took away from that something a little bit greater. If we think that we're going to do when we're older, you're setting yourself up for a major heartbreak. Because ultimately, do we know that we're going to be there when we're older? There's no time like now for us to offer service and be slaves to not only Christ, but servants to one another. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, why would the person who was now allowed to be freed from slavery, who was going to be giving plentifully, of their master's property to go out and make a life, why would they choose to stay? What did it say? What was the reason that it gave that they chose to stay? Because he loveth thee and thine house. They would willingly submit themselves in slavery for the rest of their life because he loved the master and he loved the home. If you're a slave of Jesus Christ, you love the master and you love his kingdom. You love the person sitting next to you, in front of you, and all around you. That's the proper attitude that we have to have. So in examining our life, are we a slave or a slacktivist? Justin says I like to make up words. I made that word up. Modern Christianity is a lot of slacktivism. Modern Christianity is a proclamation of Christ, and slacktivism is a proclamation of God and Christ, but it's not seen in anywhere else in our lives. It's not seen in our spiritual life. It's not seen in our social life. It's not seen in our marriage, parenting, work, or financial. But when the government says something, we, we automatically proclaim that we're Christians. When some social thing comes along, we automatically proclaim God. And we just slack off. And don't do the very thing that God wants from us, which is commit our lives to Him. And I want you to think about your life. Is your life a little bit of a mix? Are you maybe a, a slave in the spiritual aspect? Are you maybe a bit of a slacktive in the social? You have a problem with others in your social circle seeing that you're a Christian? Maybe you're a slave in your marriage, in your parenting, but when it comes to work, 
Nobody can see the slavery in your life. Maybe in your finances, you don't apply godly principles. You don't set aside for the cause of the church. Our objective, obviously, is to have all of those in the right column. That there is no part in our life, that there's no box in our life, there is no aspect of our life in which we are not committed, that we are not a slave to Jesus Christ, that we are entirely and wholly His that we have been marked by Him, that we are marked for Him, and that we are here to do His purpose and His cause, and we have a responsibility to that. You think about the slave in the Old Testament. He was a slave in every aspect because he had no choice. He was a slave in every aspect because he was completely and totally reliable on his master for everything. And therein lies the crux to our problem is oftentimes we're not completely reliable on Jesus Christ. When it comes to finances, we kind of go, well, this is my box, I'll take care of it. When it comes to our social life, we say, well, I don't know if I need to let God in this one either. When the reality is, it should be all of it in its entirety. And this is a call for us to examine our lives. And if we literally have to take a pen and paper and do this very thing, so be it. But it's time for us to be honest with our lives. It's time for us to have honest examination on whose we are more than anything. As we close today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has just been dealing with a lot of ugly things in the world. And in chapter 6, he's talking about fornication. And he's talking about the body and the defilement of fornication. And he talks about the body of them as a whole being the temple of Christ. And he says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? What, ha- what you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're not your own. That's what Paul was telling the church at Corinth. And that's what he's telling us today. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Bought for a price. With a price. As I reread it for the third time. What was that price? Earlier we talked about the fact that the slave had steel driven through his ear and into wood. And Christ had His hands nailed and His feet nailed into wood. 
showing that he was willing to endure and pay that price. That price was you. He was willing to give it all up to go through the struggles that he went through to have that metal driven through his hands and through his feet for you. That was the price. And he says, because of that, you are not yours. You are his. We need to be reminded of that sometimes, and we need to be reminded that we need to live like it in every aspect of our life. You're paid for with the blood of Christ. He humbled himself to the cross for you. What is your response? Have you been marked by Him? Have you taken part in that circumcision done without hands, but it's done in the waters of baptism? Knowing in the operation of faith that He will raise you and resurrect you to a newness of life. Have you taken that opportunity? I know sometimes when we look at our life and we're honestly, we're honest with ourselves and maybe we look at those columns and we take a proper account of our lives, sometimes those columns don't, aren't all checked in the right column. But that doesn't mean that we're bad people. What it means is we need help. And we need to submit ourselves to Christ. And sometimes we need to ask for help. Sometimes we need to go to a brother or a sister and say, I struggle with this. How did you overcome? Sometimes we just struggle and there's no words and it's just pain and we need prayers. If you've not been marked by Christ, if you need prayers, for anything and any struggles in your life, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.